You're listening to WLPN 105.5 FM Chicago, and you're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only labor news and current affairs radio program. News for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jerry Mead Lucero, and this is the Sunday, February 26, 2023 edition of Labor Express. On tonight's episode, I bring you a labor perspective on the devastating East Palestine, Ohio train accident and its aftermath from our friends across the Labor Radio Podcast Network. I'm sure all our listeners are already aware that on February 3rd, a Norfolk Southern train derailed in the small rural working class town of East Palestine or Palestine. I know I I always want to say Palestine, but I think the locals call it Palestine, uh, Ohio. Some three dozen rail cars of a 150 car long rail uh, train derailed, ending up in a derailment pile, which caught fire and burned for several days. The damaged rail cars dumped 100,000 gallons of hazardous materials, including vinyl chloride, hydrogen chloride, butyl axalate, ethyl glycol, and uh, other uh, substances into the surrounding environment. Three different programs on the radio podcast network over the past 10 days spoke with different members of Railroad Workers United, that's RWU for short. Uh, they're an inter-union cross-craft solidarity caucus of railroad workers, um, and they talked with these uh, members of RWU about the situation uh, with the rail derailment and corporate greed that uh, lies behind the tragedy, uh, as well as dozens of other derailments in recent years. Uh, first, we'll hear from Maximilian Alvarez of the Working People podcast, talking with RWU member uh, Matt Weaver about the dangers of rail companies' cost-cutting behavior. In the second half of the program, we'll hear from Chris Garlock and company from the uh, Your Rights at Work radio program out of D.C., speaking with RWU representative Fritz Adler. And if you're listening to the uh, podcast version of our program, you're going to get a, some uh, bonus content, uh, as that version will also include an excerpt from a recent episode of an excellent new uh, member of the uh, radio podcast network called We Rise Fighting Podcast. And they talk with yet a third representative from RWU. But first, how about some good news for once to kick off uh, this episode? Chris Garlock on a different episode of Your Rights at Work spoke with uh, Margaret Paddock, who's the uh, economic, is a policy analyst with the Economic Policy Institute, or EPI. Um, and she was talking about some recently released statistics on strike activity in 2022. Regular listeners will remember that uh, there was much to do about the strike upsurge that began in the latter part of 2021 in particular. We covered that extensively here on the program and emphasized both the historic nature of the upsurge as well as the uh, elements of sensationalism uh, about the upsurge created in some mainstream media. And we tried to put the uh, quote-unquote strike wave in proper scale and context. Uh, over the course of the uh, past year, over 2022, I made mention several times that it seemed unclear how much of that so-called strike wave had abated or continued. Well, it turns out that uh, 2022 witnessed a measurable and historic increase in strike activity. Here's Garlock explaining the situation. Big story this week. The number of U.S. workers involved in major strikes rose to nearly 121,000 last year. This is a nearly 50% increase from the roughly 81,000 workers that were involved uh, in strikes or major worker stoppages is the technical term in 2021. That's according to an analysis of data by the Economic Policy Institute, or EPI, it was released earlier this week. And back with us to tell it what it all me- tell us what it all means is EPI policy analyst and government affairs specialist Margaret Poiduck. Margaret, good to have you back on the show. Always a pleasure, Chris and Ed. So uh, again, listeners to this show, and you've been on before. Uh, this is no surprise. Strikes were up last year. We we saw lots of lots of little strikes and some major strikes. Your report really, as always, uh, gets into the weeds of it. Um, there, there's more to it than the you know the, the top line fifty percent increase. Tell us about it. Yeah. So just to give a little overview, like you said, the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, released their data on major work stoppages. Like, you know, that includes strikes and lockouts, um, but all the the data this year is primarily uh, strikes. So like you said, 23 strikes began in 2022, involved around 120,000 workers, increased by nearly 50% uh, percent, um, compared to 2021. Uh, two notes I would like to say is that uh, the BLS data does not capture all the strikes that had occurred um, in 2022. There are vast limitations to the data. It only involves, uh, they only count strikes that involve more than a thousand workers, last at least one full work shift, 
There's also additional limitations of, of counting during the work week. So it, it, it uh, occurs during Monday through Friday. And then it also excludes any strikes that happen during um, federal holidays. So there are limitations, but uh, based off the BLS data, it shows that workers are going on strike. Um, it is nowhere near the pre-pandemic levels that we saw in 2018 and 2019 with teacher strikes, where about half a million workers were going on strike each year. Um, but it's still still an increase in strikes nonetheless. And um, like you mentioned in our report, we do highlight several cases of workers going on strike um, and getting some really great wins, uh, increasing benefits, uh, increasing pay uh, as we're dealing with some huge inflation right now, um, as well as in, uh, improving working conditions. Ed Smith, quick question from you. Yeah, first of all, you can add about 350 uh, members to that 123,000 number <laughs> because uh, for people that are under 1,000. Uh, and I know there were some uh, uh, strikes out in California from nurses. But uh, tell me some of uh, did you were you able to analyze some of the major sectors that were uh, involved in the strikes? Yeah. So in the 2022 major work stoppage data, we definitely saw a strike, a strike or a trend among strikes in the healthcare industry, as well as uh, the public educators. So like public schools, um, I think a very well publicized and much watched strike was the Twin Cities Hospital Group in Minnesota, which uh, had about 15,000 healthcare professionals striking. Uh, uh, because um, their employer was not bargaining good faith and some of their demands was um, increased pay, but also uh, better staffing ratios for patient um, to staff care, um, as well as staffing levels in general. Um, and an interesting thing about that, that strike in particular is it, they actually um, had, a, had a strike in September um, and they ended the strike hoping that their employer would bargain with them. Um, but they did not. So they actually threatened a strike in December. Um, and that threat actually made it so um, their employer actually came to the table and they were able to negotiate um, their ability to have say in staffing uh, staffing levels as well as um, increased pay. So that story actually yeah. historic, but also shows like the power of threats of strikes as well can also get wins for workers. Well, Margaret, thanks for the wonderful report, as always. And thanks for spending a few minutes with us to explain it. Really appreciate the, you being here with us. Thanks for having me. Margaret Poida, she's EPI policy analyst and government affairs specialist. Uh, you can find her report at epi.org. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for Working People by Working People. We'll hear more from Chris Garlock and your rights at work in the second half of tonight's program. On uh, February 3rd, a Norfolk Southern train derailed in the small rural working class town of East Palestine, Ohio, causing extensive environmental damage. In many ways, this situation feels oddly personal for me for several reasons. First off, as an environmental justice activist and organizer for many years, I feel deeply for the residents of East Palestine as they face what is sure to be years of struggle ahead to mitigate the environmental impact of this corporate greed. Um, from my own experience, and I've had plenty of it, I can predict that uh, Norfolk Southern will gaslight the people of East Palestine for years regarding the real environmental impact of this uh, accident. And the government response is likely to be only slightly better. Uh, the federal EPA can be your best friend and can get important things done. They can bring significant resources and funding for mitigation efforts, but they can also often provide a smokescreen for corporate interests. Uh, the political leanings of the presidential administration in power will have an inevitable influence on the EPA's behavior, despite the best efforts of hundreds of really committed and conscientious career staff. I've had wonderful experiences with career staff at EPA, but depending on the administration power, it can really shift in, in, in terms of how well, the, how well the EPA can help you out. The state APAs tend to be even less helpful and more impacted by political considerations. Right now, it's obvious that the right is trying to mobilize quickly to use the disaster against Democrats in a town that's already Trump country. And I fear the bumbling and pro-corporate behavior of the Biden administration officials is likely to play into their hands. Let's remember that uh, Joe Biden and the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, uh, were the ones largely responsible for cramming a terrible contract agreement down the throats of rail workers just a few months ago. That leads to my second reason for feeling an extra connection to this tragedy. For many years, I've reported here on Labor Express on the deteriorating situation of rail labor and on the bipartisan political corruption that has let the rail companies literally get away with murder. 
Uh, the Obama administration instituted only the tamest of regulations on the industry a decade ago, uh, despite the obvious signs of danger at the time, like the 2013 uh, Log Megantic rail disaster, which we reported here on Labor Express, in which an entire small town in Quebec was destroyed uh, in Quebec, Canada, by a, uh, a rail train that exploded. Um, and then we only we saw the Trump administration get uh, gut even the limited regulations that Obama had in place, and the Biden administration seems to be doing little to reinstate those regulations. All the while, Rail Workers United, this uh, organization I referred to, this inner union cross-craft solidarity caucus uh, of rail workers, which is organized to try to create uh, more unity between the various unions to create uh, greater militancy among rail workers. Uh, we've reported on their founding back in 2007 and has been following them since. They've been desperately trying to warn the public of the dangers of practices in the real industry. So it's so frustrating to see those warnings go unheeded and accident after accident be the result. Lastly, I've been a frequent customer myself of Amtrak for some 25 years. And from a, a very personal experiences, a lot of very personal experiences on Amtrak, I can tell you I've seen how the freight rail companies who own the tracks that Amtrak operates on have decided it's more cost effective to let the rails deteriorate uh, and do the bare minimum to ensure their proper maintenance. Um, the rail companies have emerged as perhaps the preeminent example of capitalism run amok in recent months. First, they uh, really forced a national, nearly, I should say, nearly forced a national rail strike on the historically timid uh, rail workers' unions last fall, only to use their political muscle to impose a rail agreement in the end on the surprisingly resistant, militant, rank and file railroad workers. Then in January, it comes out that the rail companies who pleaded poverty in the contract negotiations reported record profits uh, and historic-level stock buybacks last year, uh, proving that screwing their workforce, neglecting maintenance, undermining regulations, amassing political influence, all that can uh, literally earn you billions. Um, all of this was really disturbing when you realize the vital importance that rail is to the future of our economy. I think there's a perception among much of the public that uh, rail is like a relic of the 20th or even the 19th century. Nothing can be further from the truth. Freight rail is central to the goods distribution system and the networks of our just-in-time production economy that we uh, rely on now. Um, and passenger rail is really key to, the, to an environmentally sustainable future. What is a 19th century relic, however, is the arcane labor law that governs rail labor, the regulations on rail corporations that uh, give them almost unchecked power. They're the envy of the corporate world and the conditions of the nation's rail network. Although that definitely is still basically 19th century conditions. So now that I'm done with that harangue, let's uh, hear from the most affected and informed on the situation, the rail workers themselves. Maximilian Alvarez of the Working People podcast interviewed 28-year-long railroad employee Matt Weaver, a member of the RWU on February 16th on the incident. The mainstream media has raised recently the fact that uh, the Trump administration's removal of the Obama air rule on advanced braking technology was possibly a factor in this accident. Uh, what has not received much attention are a host of other factors like train links, the number of workers on the trains, the reduced uh, inspection of trains and tracks, this precision scheduled railroading regime that's in place. It's basically kind of just-in-time production on the rail lines. All of this has had an impact, and we're going to hear about that from representatives of RWU in this segment and on the other two segments on this program. Morning, Max. My name is Matt Weaver, Matthew A. Weaver. I am a 28-year railroader. Um, currently, I'm the legislative director for our members, the BMW EV members uh, in the state of Ohio. So the Brotherhood of Maintenance Way Employees Division of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. I am the elected legislative director for Ohio. Um, I've had a couple other positions with the union. Uh, currently, I am a carpenter foreman on the railroad, and I am very concerned at the effects uh, of this derailment and interested in seeing how the report comes back from the NTSB. As y'all heard, um, we got the great Matt Weaver on. Uh, I'm so grateful to him for making time for this. And you may have been seeing Matt uh, around because, uh, you know, he's done some pretty incredible media spots of late, including on Jon Stewart's podcast, some other mainstream media spots. And it's so, so good to see 
voices like his actually getting the attention they deserve in the mainstream media. Maybe if the mainstream media actually listened to workers this whole time, we wouldn't be staring down the barrel of catastrophes like what we are currently watching unfold in East Palestine, Ohio. Listeners have been asking us about it left and right. Um, of course, we all know the basics. You know, a Norfolk Southern train derailed um, in East Palestine earlier this month, um, you know, that a train that was carrying toxic, toxic materials, including vinyl chloride, which was, um, you know, there was a quote unquote controlled release, uh, burning up of that toxic substance. There's a giant black death cloud hanging over the region right now. Fish and animals are dying. People are reporting ill health effects. It is an absolute nightmare. And there's so much that the media has not been focusing on until like maybe the past 48 hours that is connecting this catastrophe to all the things that we were talking about with railroad workers like Matt over the course of the past year. Uh, Matt, I wanted to just kind of turn things over to you with the time that we have. I do not want to ask you to uh, speculate on anything that we don't currently know. I don't want to put you in a position that's going to get you or anyone else in trouble. Um, as you said, we're going to be waiting for the details from um, the, the report um, You know that uh, we're, there's still a lot about this situation that we don't know, but I wanted to ask um, as a veteran railroader, as someone who has been focusing intently and, and speaking loudly and forcefully about the systemic issues on the railroads that have made disasters like this more likely, I was wondering if you could just sort of walk us through what you see in the you know horrific uh, uh, derailment of, an, of this Norfolk Southern train in East Palestine, what the root causes were, what the fallout of this is going to be. It's, it's very frustrating, Max. I, I do agree, I cannot speculate on the exact cause yet, but the NTSB has released a preliminary uh, news release saying that it was Axel involved. So there was video of the hot box um, throwing sparks as much as 20 miles before the derailment. Um, and then there's, you know, it goes back to precision scheduled railroading, the, the business model um, of the railroad industry for doing more with less and, and lately, it's been doing less with less. We're moving less freight, you know, still record profits, but less freight, crunch time, skeleton crews. Um, the big issue here may be car inspection times. Um, uh, machinist friends, car shop friends of mine, um, they've talked about in the past having two, or two guys inspect a car, taking four or five minutes to do so. Now it's down to one guy pushing for um, 90 seconds, less than 90 seconds, as little as a minute, but I can't, I haven't seen that in writing. So, so I, I think that um, we, we really need to see the NTSB come up with a conclusive response and, and let's prevent this. Let's, let's not have this happen again. Um, I know as of late, I've seen, um, you know, the, the reports of Obama era, administration safety regulations being rolled back by the Trump administration, um, maybe breaking technology, um, saying it, it costs too much. The, the report was that it costs too much to install the new electronic control brakes. Um, I don't know a whole lot about those, but how, how much cost is it going to be um, to really clean this up and protect American lives? I mean, railroads don't run through the backyards of wealthy people. So this is the working class who's suffering from this. This, you know, and I, I heard yesterday wells that were as as um, shallow as 35, 40 feet that these people have been drinking out of. Uh, those are going to have to be demolished. I hope those people have lots of uh, bottled water. You know. Yeah, man. I mean, it's just like I seesaw between being just infinitely heartbroken for the people uh, in and around East Palestine, for the crew on that train, for the first responders who you know we're going to find out about the horrible health effects that they're going to be enduring, uh, you know, after this uh, catastrophic derailment, right? Because it wasn't just vinyl chloride. We're finding from the EPA that there were more uh, hazardous substances on that train that have already been detected in 
the soil and surrounding waterways. I mean, like this is just a truly worst case scenario here. And yeah, I know that that um, the reports from uh, great outlets like the Lever, Breaking Point, so on and so forth, focusing on how the Obama administration really just kind of like caved and backed down from pressure from the um, freight rail industry, and then the Trump administration just you know gave the, the the industry whatever the hell it wanted and didn't force these uh, companies to implement electric braking systems, which may have mitigated um, this derailment disaster. But I wanted to focus on the other part that you said, Matt, because this, this didn't come out as much over the course of last year when we were all talking about the crisis on the railroads, right? Because I think a lot of the focus was on the engineers and the conductors, understandably so, but it was really important to hear folks like you talk about the maintenance of wayside, talk about the car inspection side, right? The track maintenance side and how that played into the larger discussion we were having. Can you can you just say a little more about that for folks who maybe didn't hear that side of the story when we were talking about why the railroads are in such a crisis right now? In, in my career, I, I've been on the railroad for 28 years. Um, the business model of precision scheduled railroading, PSR, is decimating the man count. We're down uh, as much as 30% over the last 10 years in, in manpower of rail labor. So I, I see that it, it's deferred maintenance. It's often the um, Band-Aid on a broken leg style of repair and that's kind of scary um you know we have a right to speak up and there are whistleblower protections um and good faith challenges to things but there's been a lot of retaliation on rail workers rail labor that we have our own law cfr 20109 um whistleblower retaliation on railroads i've actually had a case um so, so people are afraid to speak up because of things like this. And now, you know, back in the day when I hired him, we had six or seven guys on a track section gang. Um, now it's two or three. We had the bridge gang I hired on. Um, we had six guys. Now it's three or four. There's not enough guys to do the work. And the, the work is being deferred till there's an emergency. When there's a disaster, oh, yeah, we'll fix it now. But preventive maintenance is not as um, popular with the shareholders as it used to be in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, man, this is just this 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 is the, what happens when you just do and and commit to the just in time sort of production model, right? Like again, everyone who listens to the show will will know my rants about it, but like like we told everyone that this was going to happen. You can't just keep cutting operating costs year after year after year slashing the workforce in one of that makes like one of our most vital supply chains run year after year after year right we we know the statistics the rail there used to be over 500,000 folks working on the railroads in 1980 now there's like you know less than 150,000 the rail carriers have collectively cut 30% of their workforce in like the past 5 or 6 years alone they have done this to themselves and they have done this to rail workers and they have done this to us because we are watching what happens when you keep uh, throwing, you know, these preventative safety measures, um, these, these essential staff who are there to make sure that all the checks are in place, that everyone's looking at, that you have people looking at the bearings on these trains, inspecting the cars, inspecting the wheels, inspecting the track, maintaining these uh, parts of the infrastructure so that we don't end up with catastrophic derailments like this. And Matt, you said, because I think uh, I, I have another interview coming out for Breaking Points with uh, another friend of the show, Jay, a longtime trained dispatcher who we've interviewed a number of times on the show before. Uh, so listeners, that'll be out uh, today, tomorrow, this weekend. Um, but we talked about uh, how he was looking at that same video you mentioned, Matt, the video where you can see the kind of the fire on the train, like 20 miles outside of East Palestine. And again, we can't speculate, but he said it looks like a bearing problem, right? Which is something that, you know, the, these like um, folks who are doing the car checks and the inspections would normally catch. Um, but, you know, those uh, that, that those workers have been slashed, uh, you know, to the bone. And I, I just wanted to ask if you could say a little more about that, that there's only 90 seconds that people have to like check these cars like 
could you just say a little more of like what is supposed to be checked uh, and, and, and how can you do that in 90 seconds? So I'm, I'm not in the mechanical department. I'm in engineering, uh, bridges, buildings, and, uh, and track. But the mechanical um, guys are in, injecting bearings, hoses, uh, the knuckles. They're, they're looking at the rolling stock, and they're, their eyes on are what are finds this. You know, there's also discussions of hot box detectors that have been um, eliminated. It's, I guess it's not a federal law to have the hot journal hot box detectors um, so we, we need to find out more about that as well. Um, but you know, it, it's like real life monopoly in, in 1900, we had 132 class one railroads, I believe. Now we're down to seven pushing for a merger to make it six. And, uh, you know, there's the monopoly board four railroads on the board and here we are. And it's, it's society is going to suffer because of this, we already are about just-in-time shipping and shippers not getting their goods and embargoes on shippers. You know, the shippers were on our side in the STB hearings for, you need to hire more people. You need to get the shit moved, pick up our cars. Um, but just before we were able to go on strike, the shippers kind of turned on us and demanded that Congress impose the uh, PEB, which is very frustrating. The shippers, you know, they're serving the shareholders too, but damn it, it's, you know, we, we need to get our voice heard, and I appreciate you helping us do that. Well, we're here with you always, brother. Um, through thick and thin, like, again, I wish we were talking under less horrific circumstances, right? Last time we chatted, it was because Scab Joe Biden was forcing, and Congress were forcing a contract down your guys' throats, giving the rail carriers and their Wall Street investors everything that they wanted. Now we're talking about a worst-case scenario with this catastrophic and toxic train derailment in East Palestine, and this stuff is is... It's not inevitable. We can avoid this. We can reinvest in the workforce that maintains this vital infrastructure. We can make our rail system better if we just actually listen to workers and stop letting Wall Street destroy this vital component of our supply chain. And oh, go ahead, Matt, please. No, no other industry in America has these profit margins. They're so spectacular. They're, they're pushing for an operating ratio of 55. And if you talk about the fast food industry, they're shooting for operating ratios to get under 90. It's it's absurd that they're making so much money. They're making so much profit. They can afford to do this better. Yeah, they absolutely can. They are making billions and billions and billions of dollars. And the and another thing I want to say to folks, because I got to let Matt go in, in a minute, um, you know, like, again, please follow railroad workers, follow railroad workers united, stay on top of this, because what you will see is that, yes, this this catastrophic derailment in East Palestine, you know, is where the eyes of the nation are right now. But these derailments are happening all over the place. Like Norfolk Southern itself had two derailments the same week that Biden and Congress forced that contract down rail workers throats. We posted about it on the Real News Network Twitter uh, account. You can go find Find it. And so, Matt, I, I just wanted to sort of ask, like, before I let you go, for folks who are watching this and feeling helpless and, and scared and 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 f infuriated about all this, what can they do uh, to help? What can they do to support you and your fellow railroad workers? Um, and just any sort of kind of closing thoughts that you had uh, about this situation and the larger cluster mess that we're in right now? At, at this point in time, Railroad Workers United, railroadworkersunited.org is where you find on the website, um, is doing a fundraiser for making movies and videos to bring these these um, circumstances to light. Um, just started a GoFundMe. Um, they had one pre prior to for bargaining that did really well, and, and we are actually hiring videographers and people as staff, which is a, a very unusual for a cross-craft solidarity group that really has no no building no you know we're not we're not the union we're a group of union workers working together all of rail labor coming together because we know we have the the same needs in common so definitely go to railroadworkersunited.org and um listen in a new release came out today with a couple of the things and that um that john stewart clip you can find out more about the Working People podcast at a link up at laborexpress.org. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only labor news and current affairs radio program. We need to take a station ID break, but when we return, more on the labor perspective on the East Palestine, Ohio train derailment. So make sure to stay tuned.
You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for Working People by Working People. Perhaps the best and most extensive interview I heard from one of our fellow labor journalists in the Labor Radio Podcast Network on the Ohio train derailment was that of Chris Garlock of Your Rights at Work speaking with RWU representative Fritz Edler on the February 17th episode of his program. Fritz's extensive knowledge of how the rail companies operate and how their behavior can and does lead to serious incidents was insightful and disturbing. Here is Chris. There was a, a train derailment in a place called East Palestine, Ohio, which I have to confess I had not heard of uh, before this happened. And this was back on February 3rd. It didn't really get on my radar until folks like our next guest, Fritz Edler, uh, started making a big ruckus and drawing my attention. We've had Fritz on before. Uh, most notably to talk about a horrible derailment up in Canada some years ago. Uh, Fritz Edler, welcome to your rights at work. Uh, well, uh, thank you so much for having us on. And it's an unfortunate thing that we have to keep meeting under these kinds of circumstances. Um, and I, I think this is, a bur- unfortunately, the reason why this Ohio wreck has got a lot of people's attention is because of the great danger and toxicity. And uh, unfortunately, that's kind of uh, overshadows the, the greater danger to the whole continent of the kinds of practices that are going on. And so what's happening is is that the number of uh, wrecks per mile on the railroads is escalating and it's all escalating essentially for the same reasons. So uh, so let's talk about this. Uh, The the Ohio wreck is a great, uh, uh, it's gonna uncover a lot of where all the bodies are buried, so to speak, about some of these problems. Yeah, let me just remind folks, uh, Fritz, he's a veteran railroader. He's a special rep for Railroad Workers United. They've got a great website. He's also a former local and regional officer for BLET-IBT. That's the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen. That's part of the Teamster. So we got kind of a Teamster theme going so far uh, this hour. Now, Fritz, you know, when we've had you on before and we've covered these issues with trains, one of the reasons that we want our listeners to pay attention is because wherever the derailment, like what last time I think we were talking about what's happening up in Canada, people are like, well, this ain't Canada, this is the U.S. And you were reminding folks, you know, trains run all over the country, that pretty much wherever you live, there's a train not too far. And to sort of underline this point, just give us the quick story on East Palestine, because I've been looking at some of the pictures, and this is a devastated little community, uh, even now after a couple of weeks. That's actually quite similar in a way, uh, just uh, geographically and demographically with the town of Lac-Megantic that you mentioned. They're both about the same size population. They're both essentially semi-rural, and they're both places that got victimized with no discernible benefit for the people who live there from the from the uh, practices that were going on. And I want to make sure you take note of this picture that's behind me. Mm-hmm. The picture that's behind me is from the 2016 wreck that took place right in D.C. If the question is whether people don't understand that this comes home, this is what happened on the, on May 1st of 2016. This was a CSX train. It was actually a longer train than the one that derailed in Ohio. And uh, the only reason it didn't make a bigger impact in the media was because no one was killed, although that was strictly a question of luck. Uh, This particular derailment that took place at the Rhode Island Avenue Metro Station was just a short distance from an apartment building and all this important infrastructure, and it's just luck that it didn't turn out to be a bigger disaster. And the root causes are essentially the same. So in this particular uh, wreck in 2016 in DC, the approximate cause was a wheel axle defect. That's the same thing that is now being uh, you know, focused on as the cause of the wreck in Ohio. But in uh, these are 19th century style defects. These are things that shouldn't be happening anymore. We have the technology, we have the means, We know the science, we know how to do it, and why are they continuing to go on? And one of those answers is the the operating practice of all the class one railroads in the country, which is called precision scheduled railroading or PSR. So uh, it has just come out just today that um, the Norfolk Southern, in the case of the wreck in Ohio, 
had uh, gotten rid of the specialist employees who were members of the signalman's union who knew how to take care of and were the people responsible for the maintain maintenance of the wayside detectors that are supposed to catch these uh, kinds of defects. In the case of the Ohio thing, they know that it, for at least 20 miles, there was evidence that this uh, defect was going on. All of that time, if best practices, normal practices, which are unfortunately not regulated by the federal government, uh, if those practices had been conducted in the way they would have been in the past, this defect almost certainly would have been caught before any of the important damage that's taken place here. In this case, they just got the damage right before the wreck. 202-588-0893 is how you join the conversation. You're listening to Your Rights at Work. Chris Garlock here on WPFW. We're talking to Fritz Edler. He's a veteran railroader, as you can tell from the way he's talking about trains, because I sure as heck don't know anything about him. He's a special rep for Railroad Workers United. Now, Fritz, I was just reading about this, and so what you were talking about was this this terrible accident, which was a derailment, and, and you do have this picture of, of the one that happened here in D.C. I, I see that, that location by Rhode Island. I see it all the time when I'm on the metro, um, but, you know, it, it's something with the thing that happened in East Palestine. I was again, it was what I was reading was is apparently something that happened with a bearing which, you know, I'm sure they're much bigger on a railroad car, but apparently that bearing somehow created a fire. And so the train was rolling into town on fire, which is already, I'm thinking, not a good thing. But then you had the added problem of a bunch of these rail cars had, I guess, either toxic chemicals or chemicals <laughs> that once they're exposed uh, become toxic. Help me out here. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's 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 go back to the beginning. So the train originated on the second of February outside of St. Louis, Missouri. It traveled through Missouri and then through, I guess, uh, uh, Illinois and Indiana, and ended up in Ohio. Its destination was Conway, Pennsylvania. It was 150 cars. Of that 150 cars, 20 had uh, dangerous chemicals and things in it. Um, and of those 20, 10 of them were involved in the actual derailment, about 51, I think, cars of out of that 150 were actually off the rails and tumbled and, and wrecked. Uh, and you're right. So, and so the, the focus, a lot of people have been focusing on one particular chemical that was, there were five carloads of it, that, that chemical was called vinyl chloride. Vinyl chloride boils at like eight degrees Fahrenheit or something. So it has to be shipped in the liquid state. So when it breaches, it doesn't just pour out, you know, into the uh, atmosphere in the soil. It, it, it goes, it actually sort of um, vaporizes and becomes gases and component. And then when it burns, it deteriorates or depends on how you want to call it combines uh, it is transformed chemically into other components it's a very dangerous chemical and it's not just da dangerous from the point of view of like whether you inhale it or touch it or whatever like that but because it's also um, explosive potentially it's also a, it burns um, and so this was a particularly egregious case and it should be pointed out that this train is not considered, this train was not considered as a, as a hazardous train under the very limited kinds of regulations that were issued under the Obama administration and which the Trump administration then eliminated and the current Biden administration will not reimpose. So in other words, this train didn't get the extra kinds of federal regulatory considerations that it needed in order to help uh, prevent this problem. Uh, one of those questions has to do with braking. We also have a big problem with the way that they handled the marshalling of the train, how it was built, and the fact that it's longer and heavier. Well, this has been an issue. This is reminding me of, of a bunch of things that we were talking about when there was a potential for a strike a couple of months ago. The big issue there, of course, being healthcare, but I think also the staffing, which you've talked to us about before, which I'm always just sort of blown away that you know how few people i just took amtrak uh, a couple of weeks ago and i mean i don't know how many engineers there were on it but you know there are certainly a bunch of people it's a passenger train i know it's different but i think you were telling us that they've just been reducing and reducing the number of folks running you know these these trains and you were saying what there's 150 cars in this train that that 
I mean, I'm no expert, but you know, it seems like you need more than a couple of people. It's a long and heavy train in the in the Ohio case, but actually, the train that you see behind me, this was 25 more cars beyond that. It was oh, a wow. longer train. It was in two states at once. It was, you know, <laughs> this is what's this is what's going on, uh, and what's happened is the industry, driven by short-term profit uh, motivations under the PSR regime, uh, they're just pressing the envelope and pressing the envelope and pressing the envelope. And what they say, both about the length and the weight of the trains, as well as the crew question, and I can tell you this because I was in the room in the FRA hearings and in the Maryland State Assembly when the industry talked about it, and they said they said on all these questions that in order to continue to mandate that past practices that were understood as being safe, we would have to document uh, proof that they were the better way to do it. But whenever they decide just to do some new brand new practice that nobody's ever done and nobody's ever checked out, there is no requirement for that. One of the examples was the question, I mean, they've stated that their goal is to have one person on each train. Actually, their real goal is to have nobody on the train and have them run remotely. But most of the time in public, they just say that there, you know, there's no evidence that having more than one person on the train is is a safer thing. Now, I point out in the case in Ohio, they had a crew of three. There's one of the people was a trainee. So, you know, since that person is, you know, sort of a bystander in a certain way. But the fact was that they had a conductor and an engineer. And because they had an engineer and a conductor, they were able to split the locomotive power away from the wrecked train and get it out of harm's way where it could have actually created an additional problem. And they also provided expert response information and things at the time. But if there was only one person on the train and understand that not just Norfolk Southern, all the class ones want to do this. You can only do two things with a train. You can stop or you can go forward. That's it, period. You can't split. You can't back up. You can't do any of the things that you might imagine that you would need to do. For example, to clear a road crossing so a fire truck or an ambulance can go through. This is what's posed. And this is why uh, we think that not, we not only in the case of the Ohio wreck and all these wrecks, we not only have to look at the proximate cause, but we have to look at the root causes in PSR. And then we have to seriously, seriously look at whether or not this model that isn't true anywhere else in the developed world, basically, where the private corporations get to run the critical, dangerous and economically central infrastructure and they get to just make any decision that they want with very little oversight and the oversight they get is from captured regulators well let me go back and just uh, remind folks uh, we're talking to fritz adler mm -hmm. he's a veteran railroader he's a special rep for U railroad workers united uh former local and regional officer for the brotherhood of locomotive engineers and trainmen that's part of the teamsters and uh, you are listening to your rights at work here on wpfw you can join the conversation 202-588-0893 if uh, you're concerned as i certainly am about these uh, trains running through our neighborhoods with uh, very few people running them and and i want to get back to something you you mentioned uh fritz which is I mean, I'm looking at the picture, you know, of the, of the railroad cars uh, behind you from the 16, uh, you know, uh, derailment here in D.C. You know, those are not shiny, you know, like the Amtrak that I took is all shiny and new looking. Those are pretty, you know, at least to me, they look yep. old and kind of beat up. I think you had talked before about that the stock is is pretty aging. And I think part of what the problem is, is is the question of, of maintenance. I mean, if that whole thing in East Palestine could happen because of, of bearing. Which I imagine is, you know, just part of the whole train, right? Well, it's really the whole bearing. It's not just a single bearing; it's the whole bearing assembly. But yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, no, explain that. Explain. I mean, what, what I'm sort of trying to imagine is like, you know, I know something about my car. In fact, I'm taking it in for some service on Monday because it's got a bit of a shimmy in it, right? So I'm, I know I got four wheels. I got this. I got that. Yeah. I'm trying to imagine that times 150. <laughs> I'm thinking yeah. that's a that's a lot of parts that could go wrong. Who's checking these things? Yeah. Well, so there's a couple of parts to this, right? One is is that there's mandated uh, 
uh, regular maintenance uh, and inspection. The inspection part is key, right? So the, there's uh, it's periodic. There's it's based upon how much time has passed and a variety of other things, as well as you know when when was the last time it operated, things like that. Um, what the railroads have done is they've furloughed and otherwise driven from the industry much of their expertise in all these crafts, not just maintenance, but on the operating side and in the other crafts as well. And then they apply to the regulators for, you know, waivers on various regulations that exist to say, well, it's inconvenient for us to do an inspection at this location. Uh, we don't want to keep somebody there anymore. So how about if it's okay if we transport this defect over to this other place? where maybe we'll look at it. Now, whether that actually is specifically one of the situations in the in the case in Ohio, that remains to come out. The second part of it, and what we already referred to, is this business about wayside detection. The wayside detectors are critical. You know, it's, it's kind of like the, um, the buck stops there, right? You know, and well, let me just back up and say, every wheel that you deal with has bearings in it right your bicycle wheel your car wheel whatever it's not any different on the railroad uh in the case of this wreck that took place in washington dc and in the case uh of the situation out in ohio what happens and presumably it's with if you really just use that equipment and use it and use it and use it and use it uh eventually they there can be a failure the question is how do we catch it and in the case there, they essentially created a situation where the train traveled for a great distance, some of which we now know from other sources of information, it would have picked up this defect and, and they would have stopped the train, they would have set it out and everybody would be fine. But this rolls up exclusively to, the, to PSR and the way that uh, the carriers are inclined to try and get away with as little maintenance and as little inspection and as little detection as possible. That's pretty scary, Fritz. Uh, uh, that that uh, does that doesn't make me feel really confident. And and here's what I'm sort of flashing on because you know, as you heard at the top with some of the news, you know, yet another shooting. And what I worry about, Fritz, and 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 tell me if I'm way off base here, but you know, it's starting to feel with these shootings that we're becoming they're becoming sort of you know. I don't want to say normal or usual, but there's so many of yeah. them. Um, and oh wow, just uh, looks like we have some breaking news uh, from uh, one of our engineers that there was another train derailment in Detroit. Wow. Okay, which sort of makes yeah. thank you, uh, Kalia and or Michael. You're sort of making the point I was trying to make, which is, you know, these train derailments, at least as far as I know, don't seem to happen that often. But uh, it, it's is is this something that we're going to have to sort of get used to? I mean, it's there... a normalization. That's thank a, you. That's, that's the a good word way. That's for. the word yeah. you're looking for, and that's yeah. kind of what we're dealing with here. And I want to say this because in this, this you know narrative that's taking place in the public now, the Association of American Railroads and the carriers are going to cite all kinds of specialized numbers to claim that they're so very safe and that they take care of everything. But the reason that they're able to 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 fool with the numbers the way that they do is because they're running fewer trains they're running fewer trains from a combination of the fact that they've driven these people out of the industry and they try to you know make the trains longer and longer and longer uh and and so but the fact of the matter is is the number of wrecks per mile is gone up it's going up and there's a kind of disingenuous quality to the way that they uh, the uh, industry and their captured regulators and whatnot talk about this, but uh, the public we have and we have to get to this problem because it's going to eventually get to the point where people just say, "Well, this is you know this is how things are." That that's exactly what I'm normalizes exactly the word that I was looking for there, and that's what worries me. Whether it's the shootings or or things mm -hmm. like this, where people are just like, "Well." You know, this is just sort of what happens. And, you know, as you point out, you know, and I guess in East Palestine, and let me just talk about this a little bit before I let you go. Um, you know, with the release of the toxic chemicals, the, the information, and I guess it's not all in yet, but it doesn't seem like maybe they had the correct information right away. Um, they were telling people the water is safe to drink, um, but they should, uh, 
they say it's safe to drink, but everybody should drink bottled water. Um, and, yeah. and what I'm what I'm hearing uh, from some on the ground reports is that the air is still pretty stinky there, so people are worried about going back. Um, so just sort of help me to understand yeah. those kind of. Uh, well, that, that's important, and and you know I'm my expert. I'm hazmat certified, but I'm not an expert on all the details of of how this monitoring is going on. But I will say this. What I already see is that there's an effort on their part to focus on the air and say that in the air that they don't detect, they detect levels, but they don't qualify as the high enough levels to worry about. But I think what you're going to find out, what's going to end up happening is, is that the real problems, the lasting problems are going to be from the fact of the long term burning and, and explosions and uh, whatnot that took these chemicals and converted them into new forever chemicals that they won't even necessarily look for. And so, for example, when they vented one of the cars, they breached one of the cars that was leaking to keep it from exploding. They determined that it was going to spread shrapnel over a mile. So they breached it. And when they breached it, it released the components of this chemical that had been transformed by the process of aerosolization and fire and phosgene gas was one of those things which is a world war one trench warfare gas mm. another thing mm. is, is hydrogen chloride hydrogen chloride is hydrophilic it it combines with moisture water particles wherever it finds them and creates hydrochloric acid so where i'm going with this is that going forward they may legitimately be able to say at some point that the air itself is not the problem but everything else is all the, the every you know the playgrounds and the lawn furniture and the and the swimming pools and they're all going to be covered with particulate chemicals some of which are not going to be the same chemical that was in the railroad car. So the question is, are they going to detect it? But then it goes into the soil and into the water. And, the, you know, this is not something that nobody knows about. In the Megantic accident, this is the same thing that happened. And this pristine place that used to be a destination for people who wanted the natural world is never going to be the same because of, of what happened. And what happened was preventable, and it's preventable in this case. It's so fascinating for us because uh, the the chemicals and and I mean it seems like when something like this happens you got a choice you know you got two bad choices right I mean if you don't vent the the uh, the car then it's going to explode that's bad you got you know flying shrapnel more fire explosion if you do vent it you're you're burning that you know, I think they they actually I think if I read right they actually set fire to it on purpose so they could burn it off. Uh, because they actually used a small explosive. Oh, which, uh, <laughs> they used a small explosive to breach it. And I, you know what? I'm not even going to get into the question of whether they really knew. Uh, it, it would seem that they sort of knew what they were doing. But if you just think about it, and here's the thing is that they did that because the built-in protections of that car, such as they are, that were supposed to release the pressure to keep it from an explosive situation were not working. They were damaged. Well, I don't know, maybe they were already damaged, but they they weren't working after the wreck. And so this is the situation they were left with. But even if they had worked correctly, they would have been leaking vinyl chloride, which is what was happening with some of the other cars. So. Give folks uh, the the uh, the website uh, for Railroad Workers United because it's a very yeah. helpful website. That's railroadworkersunited.org, and please look there and check out the various uh, reports on the equipment and the problems historically, uh, as well as our resolution on public ownership and um, uh, other materials. And we welcome uh, our our partners as stakeholders the the public involvement in this question. Well, Fritz, thanks for jumping on and bringing some light to this. Uh, and um, um, unfortunately, I'm sure we're going to have to have yep. you back, but we appreciate your report. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sir. All right. Take care. That's Fritz Adler. He is a veteran railroader. He's a special rep for Railroad Workers United. He's a former local and regional officer of BLET-IBT. That's the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen. That is part of the Mighty Teamsters Union. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only labor news and current affairs radio program. 
Thank you to Chris Garlock, the host of the Your Rights at Work radio program and also the organizer of the Labor Radio Podcast Network for making that audio available to us. You can find out more about Your Rights at Work linked up at laborexpress.org. Our final segment on this program, our podcast bonus segment, comes from a great new member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, the We Rise Fighting Podcast. On a recent episode of their podcast entitled A Hell of Wall Street's Making, Jeff Kurtz of Railroad Workers United talks about the East Palestine disaster. Jeff echoes many of the similar sentiments and concerns about the rail industry as we've heard from other members of RWU in this program. So here is Jeff Kurtz. And on our show today, again, is Jeff Kurtz. You may remember he joined us uh, once earlier before. He's representing the Railway Workers United. I just wanted to check in about what happened with the recent derailments and where the history of that is you know, Railway Workers United role, uh, their, the union's role in this. Just, Jeff, if, if you could give us a little history of what got us to today as far as these recent derailments. Okay, and, and thank you very much, Rick, for having me on today. Um, this actually goes back to the 1985 agreement uh, that um, was uh, fostered by the, the Reagan administration. Their uh, presidential emergency board that that they instituted it was contract negotiations similar to what we just did in 2022. Uh, this happened in 1985, and basically what happened is they told the UTU at the time, and now the UTU is Smart uh, Transportation Division, but at the, at the time they were the UTU. Uh, they were told by the Reagan administration, here's the presidential emergency board. If you don't accept this, we're going to give you something much worse. So what they did was basically hold a gun to these guys' heads. What they had to end up signing for was an agreement that allowed the railroads to start cutting their jobs. So we we used to have um, two brakemen and a conductor on each train. We used to have cabooses on each train. They were they were far smaller than they are now, but they ran uh, more safely than they did. Well, this allowed the government to, or not the government, this allowed the railroads to uh, start cutting employees. So eventually, and it was at the, on the Santa Fe at the time, it uh, got, we got down to uh, one conductor and one, Brakeman by about 1990. Um, it shortly thereafter, it was just uh, the engineer and the conductor, and the cabooses went by the wayside. Okay, so so to clarify here, Jeff, because this is where my knowledge is at as far as these current events. Um, all I know right now is that the federal government is doing an investigation. So, are you tracing the root of the problem to the amount of staffing? Um, for railway workers, am, am I understanding you correctly here? Uh, staffing and uh, and eventually, I want to get into the length of the trains too, because that that was a major factor in this last derailment. The length and um, tonnage of this train it was ninety three hundred feet long, eighteen thousand tons. So when we ran trains shorter back in the day, uh, we. Like I said, we had uh, people on the rear end of the train, people on the head end. We experienced things like uh, hot journals. Uh, we experienced sticky brakes and things like that. But from what I heard from, from this accident, they saw fire flying from under the car at least 20 miles away. <laughs> yeah. And it, you know, and, and that indicates to me that it was a bad journal, uh, uh, journal connected to the wheel. And back when, back in the 70s and 80s, when I first hired out, when that would happen, we would have all these eyes on the train. They would see that, especially at the time of the night that this derailment happened. It happened at about nine o'clock at night. So that gave them three hours of darkness where when you're going around curves and everything and you've got that many eyes on it, somebody would have caught this. And what, what the procedure is, when you catch something like this, you stop your train, uh, the conductor or the brakeman or both go back, look at the, inspect the car, 
And in this case, what they would have done is cut uh, the offending car away from the rest of the train, taken that car to a siding or a yard or, or some unoccupied track, set it out. They probably would have proceeded to uh, that location at somewhere between 20, 10, 5 miles an hour, depending on uh, how bad the, the journal and the wheel was damaged. They would have set that car out, tied back onto their train, uh, got the air back into the braking system, and been on their way. And, and there wouldn't have been any catastrophe. In, in this situation, because of the fact that this train was so large, you also have the added factor of, of just horrendous in-train forces. And that, that's another thing that, that's going to contribute to derailments when uh, you have a train that large. Cars, you know, I, I think they said that it was something like 150 cars. When they're coupled up, the coupling mechanism has slack, what we call slack in it. With 150 cars, 1.8 or 1.8 or 9 miles long, whatever it was, you're going to have... Uh, slack action in there that is well let's put it this way when we were running small trains that slack action would tear the couplers uh, it it could tear the couplers up very easily in fact the, the knuckle on the coupler that actually does the coupling is uh solid iron and it weighs about 60 or 70 pounds uh that it, that would just be torn up in a conventional train in a train that large there's there's no controlling those forces. So uh, the, the the thing that we need to look at is, and and this is before you know I I'm sure you've seen in the news, Rick, about the braking system, and everybody's talking about the braking system. Yeah. The thing that we need to look at the uh, braking system would be about fourth or fifth on my list. The first thing that we need to do is uh, we, we would like the uh, Department of uh, Transportation to put out an emergency order uh, stating that no train over uh, 8,500 feet will roll a wheel until they, until they can comply with the 8,500 feet. Any train that's deemed a hazardous train, um, we probably should make it 5,000 feet and demand that there a, a caboose be put on the rear end and uh, have it staffed with a qualified conductor and a qualified trainman. All right. And question, you know, one of the things that Railway Workers United stands for is public ownership of the railways. And I'm very much in favor of this, you know, especially, you know, after seeing all this and after having to hear that a strike would cost $2 billion a day, you know, for me, honestly, there's not much of a federal investigation that needs to be done. For me, the culprit is the profits and the dividends and therefore the shareholders and the owners. Yep. So that's kind of a long way and maybe slightly editorialized way to ask, how would public ownership relieve or alleviate some of the safety concerns? And what has Railway Workers United said about safety concerns in the past? Thank you, Jeff. Oh, okay. And and uh, what what that what public ownership would do is take the profit uh, motive out of this equation. And actually, <clears throat> it wouldn't cost that much money to do what I just suggested. You know, uh, the if 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 this was uh, publicly owned, uh, like a like a utility, um, they they would probably do something like this and and make the the railways much, much safer. Uh, now with the, the hedge funds and uh, the CEOs involved, it, this is this is going to be really tough to do. But, uh, you know, the braking system that they're talking about, I, I would if if we decided to do it tomorrow, it'd probably take a minimum of two years. And I would bet uh, with experience, knowing how these things work, that it, it would take at least 10 years to do it. Um, but, um, okay, so public ownership would make sure that we would take these measures 
and we would eliminate uh, derailments like this. And what was the second part of your question? What kind of safety protocols and concerns has Railway Workers United uh, spoken to in the past? Uh, on, on this subject or just in general? Surely on this subject and other subjects that the public should hear in general. Okay, we we have talked about the the long train issue before, and um, you know we we uh, decided a long time ago that this needed to be taken care of. This this is something that needed to be addressed. Yeah. Um, you know, limiting the size of trains. Right now, they're running trains three miles long and longer, and it just um, yeah, it, it's no untenable. that's. That, that, that's a scary this, thing. That's a scary thing to think about as the public, as the community, no doubt. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you and Marilee have been on the show and kind of have ha have highlighted, you know, the safety concerns when a train is going through your neighborhood. And, you know, the two of you have also highlighted the safety protocols. Um, so thank you for doing that. You know, we hope um, that <clears throat> Railway Workers United and ideas like public ownership start getting more, more momentum. You know, I've been secretly thinking to myself that that's part of the reason that the railway owner, owners don't want to draw too much attention to this, because if they draw too much attention to this, public ownership will make sense, and I think it'll gain momentum, uh, my my two cents personally. But thank you, Jeff, and, you know, we're going to keep in touch and keep, you know, hopefully updated on what's going on with you and Railway Workers United. Thank you for being on the show today. Okay, and, and thank you, Rick. Uh, if uh, you're... Uh, listeners want more information, go to railroadworkersunited.org and you can get all kinds of information. I have, I'm starting to uh, <clears throat> write up a, a resolution on long trains and staffing. So hopefully that will appear soon on there, but uh, you can get a lot, a lot of information off that website. Thank you so much for having me. You sure can. Thank you for being on the show. Definitely go to Railroad Workers United website. Uh, sign up for their email listserv. It's very informative, very helpful. Uh, thank you again, Jeff. You have a good day. Thank you. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for working people by working people. You can find out more about the We Rise Fighting podcast at a link up at laborexpress.org, as well as more things about our program in general. Labor Express is a nonprofit 501c3 member of IBEW Local 1220. The views expressed on Labor Express are those of its producers, not necessarily those of IBEW. Labor Express is a production of the Committee for Labor Access in Chicago, the world capital of the labor movement. Labor Express is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, working people's voices broadcasting worldwide 24 hours a day. Find out more at laborradionetwork.org. The song is our theme called Worker Songs, written by Ed Pickford and recorded by the Dropkick Murphys. Tune in every Sunday at 8 p.m. or Monday at 11 a.m. on 105.5 FM or lumpinradio.com for more Labor Express. <laughs> Oh no.